Welcome to Canada's National Bible Hour. This is Brian Albrecht, your host, and I have a text from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a lively hope because the Lord Jesus Christ, who's God's only begotten Son, left the glories of heaven to come to earth to become a man, the God-man, 100% God and 100% man, undiminished deity wrapped up into perfect humanity. He was born in a manger, he grew up and lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross and bore our sins in his own body as he hung on the tree. And this is a lively hope is because Jesus Christ rose on the third day, and because he rose from the dead, we are promised eternal life and the fact that we will rise from the dead as well and have a resurrection body just like his and we will serve him throughout eternity. What a great blessing it is. And the Bible tells us that our efforts or our work here on earth that are under the control of the Holy Spirit are rewarded and we will be blessed as we serve with Jesus Christ throughout eternity. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, oh, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Won't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna let it shine, oh, won't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna let it shine, won't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no. I'm gonna let it shine, oh, hide it under a bushel, no. I'm gonna let it shine, hide it under a bushel, no. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine. Oh, let it shine. This is a radio edition of Global Times. Today we have in our studio Michelle Phoenix, who has a tremendous ministry. First of all, she's an authorist and has authored several books that are becoming bestsellers. And also uh, she does a lot of seminars for missionary kids. She travels around the wor world and we're so thankful that she's a global outreach missionary. So Michelle, why don't you tell us about uh, what's happened in the last year or so in your ministry? <laughs> A lot has happened in the last year or so in my ministry. It's hard to um, to give a simple answer to that because each day is different in my life, which I love. I'm, I'm not a fan of doing the same thing every day, so this is a good thing. I have been privileged enough to travel throughout the world in the last couple of years as far as Nepal and Chiang Mai and as close to where we are now in Switzerland, uh, Germany and France and places in between. And 
I do a lot of speaking, but to various groups. So every time I present, I get to pull out a different aspect of what it is to become, to be, to grow up as an MK. So I speak in uh, pre-field orientations, which I love, because what we don't realize is that one of the top three reasons for missionary attrition is children, mm-hmm. is they find out that their children are not thriving, that their children are not doing well, and so they leave the field. And I feel like if we can be preventative from the pre-field standpoint, not only to keep missionaries on the field longer, but to keep their children's experiences healthy and and good for them so that kids can celebrate the fact that they're MKs and not resent it or regret it. I think that's a really important place to start. So pre-field, on the field, MK schools are all over the world right now. I've been privileged enough to work in Germany and in Spain and in uh, Budapest and Vienna at those MK schools, one in Nepal and Kathmandu as well. And the people who are sent over to teach MKs or who volunteer to go over to MK schools, MK meaning missionaries kids, for those of you who aren't familiar, a lot of times are not missionary kids themselves. They might have cross-cultural experience, but they have it as an adult, and that's a different experience than growing up steeped in multiple identities, multiple languages, multiple experiential worlds. So um, to be able to teach their teachers about who it is that's in their classrooms, to ask questions before penalizing, to realize that some of these children who might be behaving in a way that we would consider disrespectful or out of place are actually doing exactly what they're expected to do in their other cultures. So just giving them that cultural awareness and explaining to them that these young people in their classrooms are not necessarily aware that they're being inappropriate because to them it's all this very confusing cultural soup that they're trying to make sense of. I also get to do um, re-entry seminars for MKs who usually are graduating from high school and going into university or college and what a pivotal point of their Mm -hmm. lives this is. For a lot of them, they're heading back to what we call their passport culture, which to them is more foreign than any of the other cultures than they've lived in to that point. So we really need to start very basically with um, reintroducing them to this world that is supposed to be home to them, undoing some of the predisposition that's there to dislike the people, to look down on the people, to assume that nobody in their passport culture has anything to offer them because they feel like they know so much more and have experienced so much more. And then giving them some tools, some transitional tools. Most of these MKs, if we drop them into a forest in some jungle somewhere, they would have the skills to figure out how this people group works and to find their way within it. When they go back to their passport culture, sometimes because of resentment and sometimes because of laziness, they don't apply that same cultural tool set. So teaching them that it's just as important for this place called home for them to apply their cross-cultural skills. And then any other any other contact I get online, I have a website, michellephoenix.com, and anybody who Googles TCK, Third Culture Kid, or MK Missionaries Kid, tends to come across my website. So strangers who write to me, MKs who are struggling. For example, today I started my day with a Skype call with parents in France whose child is really struggling and the whole family as a result is really struggling and trying to figure out where God is in this and what their future looks like if they can't help this child of theirs. And then in the middle of the day I got an email from an MK who's struggling with sexuality. Who am I? In my other culture this is what sexuality looks like. In my passport culture this is what it looks like. What is the biblical foundation for who I am? And then this afternoon I had a Skype call with Taylor University who asked me to come and speak about MKs in one of their general assemblies. So every day is different and every day is good. And I love my life and I love that Global lets me live this life. <laughs> well, praise the Lord for that. I'm very glad for that. Praise the Lord for you. And thank you for coming to the conference. Glad to have you here. 
Thank you so much for listening to Canada's National Bible Hour. As you know, this is a listener-supported program, and we would not be able to be on the air without our listeners' help. Please remember us in your wills and trust as a legacy gift. This can help Canada's National Bible Hour continue on the air even after your life on this earth ends. This month we are offering a booklet called The Saga of a Wise Fool by Dr. Fred Hartman. In this booklet, you will meet an intriguing character known for wisdom and foolishness. The contradiction between his reputation as the wisest man who ever lived and his choices that were very unwise can be understood by examining different aspects of his life. Dr. Fred Hartman does this in a very powerful way. To order your copy, please write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario L2R7A7, or in the U.S., Box 2010, Buffalo, New York 14231. Good day. If you, your friends from church, or family members are interested in more information about short-term or career ministry opportunities, or seeking someone to come to your church, or a group to speak about international missions, please call 866-483-5787 in Canada or 888-900-5048 in the United States or on the web visit www.missiongo.org. So we can share more information. Spirit, I need you, I need you. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your Right. 
Today's message is from the Honorable Ernest C. Manning, as entitled, Faith Once Delivered. Printed copies are available upon request. Today in our series of talks entitled, The Faith Once Delivered Unto the Saints, we come to the matter of divine judgment. May I first direct your attention to three passages of Scripture, which establish this subject as an important aspect of the faith once delivered. In the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes 12:14, we read, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. In the New Testament, Hebrews 9:27 tells us, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. While in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the Apostle John says, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Two important facts are underscored by these passages. First, everything men have done since time began, whether it be good or evil, is subject to the judgment of God. And secondly, every individual will someday be judged of God, and that judgment will determine his or her status throughout eternity. It is easy to understand, therefore, why the doctrine of divine judgment is a cardinal truth revealed in the faith once delivered unto the saints. One of the first things the scriptures do in dealing with this matter is dispel the popular but false idea that someday there will be a general judgment of all people before a great judgment throne where God will divide the good from the bad and assign each to a heaven or hell depending on the record of their lives. You know the theory, I'm sure. God sitting on a great white throne with the dead of all ages standing before him he reviews the record of their lives and the books which will be opened, and then divides them into two groups, the sheep from the goats, the good from the bad, and invites those who have done good into heaven and banishes those who have done evil into the fires of hell. I assure you this is in no sense what the scriptures teach about the judgment of God. The general judgment theory is purely a figment of imagination on the part of those prone to refer flippantly to the idea of life beyond the grave, and who lack any clear understanding of man's alienation from God and its eternal consequences, unless they're reconciled to God, not by works of righteousness, but through the atoning efficacy of Christ's divine blood shed for their sins on the cross of Calvary. What the inspired scriptures do teach is that there are five distinct and separate judgments, one of them is in the past, and four still in the future. Perhaps you'd like to make a few notes for future reference, as I endeavor to trace out the five judgments and what they will mean for the people involved. Let us first deal with the four that will take place in the future. The first in order of time will be the judgment of those who are Christians, that is, those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior during this present church age, or age of the gospel of the grace of God, which he revealed to mankind through the Apostle Paul, as we discussed in an earlier talk in this series. 
That coming judgment of believers in Christ is described in Romans 14 and 10, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, and 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. Those and other passages make clear, as we also noted in an earlier talk, that the judgment of Christians at the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with their entrance into heaven, but will be a judgment of their lifestyle and their service to Christ, which will determine their future rewards. If any man's work abides the testing fire, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15 says, he shall receive a reward. But if, if any man's work is of the wood, hay, and stubble variety, and is consumed by the testing fire, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. It is important that we as Christians understand that our manner of life and our service for Christ someday will come under his divine scrutiny and judgment, and the outcome will affect our future rewards and our status throughout eternity. Our manner of life and service for Christ as those professing to be his is important. And anticipating the examination we will face when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the apostle Peter asks, What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Our judgment as believers will take place in heaven during the interval of time between Christ's appearing to remove his church from this world and his second coming with his church to set up his millennial kingdom on this earth. The second judgment of the future is the judgment of nations that will take place when Christ returns to this earth with his church. It is described in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Verses 31 and 32 say, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them. Notice them isn't referring to individuals, but to nations. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them, one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, the chapter goes on to point out that the basis of their judgment will be their attitude and actions towards those referred to as Christ's brethren, a biblical term used to describe the redeemed people of God, including his chosen earthly people Israel. Read the passage carefully and you'll discover that God holds nations responsible for their attitude towards and their treatment of those who are his during their pilgrimage through the hostile environment of this ungodly world. The status of nations during the thousand years of Christ's earthly reign will be determined by the category into which they fall at the judgment of nations, decided by what they did or did not do for those whom Christ refers to as the least of these, my brethren. The third future judgment will be that of fallen angels, who chose to follow Lucifer in his original rebellion against God, and also those who violated one of God's immutable decrees when they entered into illicit relations with women prior to the universal flood in the days of Noah. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, 19, 20, refers to them as spirits which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. And in 2 Peter 2 and 4, as angels that sin, whom God cast down to hell and delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 
Jude refers to them in verse 6 as the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. goes on to say that God has reserved them in everlasting chains unto the judgment of the great day. We're not told precisely when the future judgment of these fallen angels will take place. But 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says that someday we, that is Christians, shall judge angels, which indicates that we will play some role in their future judgment. The fourth and last judgment to come is that of the unbelieving dead of all ages, which will take place at the end of Christ's millennial reign, when he will take his place on what is described in Revelation 20 as the great white throne. We referred to this briefly in an earlier talk in connection with the future resurrection of the unbelieving dead. Let me read again from Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We noted in an earlier talk that the resurrection of the unbelieving dead of all ages will, according to Revelation 20 and 5, take place after Christ's earthly millennial reign is ended. The resurrection of those the Bible calls the just will have taken place long before. The Christians of this age at Christ's appearing to remove his church before the Antichrist comes on the world scene. And the Old Testament saints at Christ's return to earth with his church to set up his kingdom. Only the unbelieving dead will remain, and they are those resurrected and judged at the judgment of the great white throne. Their judgment will not determine their eternal destiny. That was determined by themselves before they died. As Christ said, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What will be determined at the great white throne will be the sentence or degree of eternal punishment for those who ignored or rejected God's offer of forgiveness and eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. My friend, if you have not received Christ as your personal Savior, someday you will stand in judgment before the great white throne, having already forfeited all hope of heaven. Now why place yourself in such a position? Why refuse the full and free forgiveness God in His love and mercy offers you today? If only you will avail yourself of the salvation Christ purchased for you by dying for your sins in your place on the cross. I plead with you not to put off any longer acknowledging your sins and your need of God's forgiveness or to longer delay receiving Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. I said earlier that there is one great judgment that already has taken place. It is the judgment that took place nearly 2,000 years ago on the hill of Calvary outside Jerusalem where God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for your sins and the sins of all mankind on the old rugged cross. There God pronounced judgment on your sins and then transferred them and their penalty 
to the sinless head of his own beloved Son. The Bible says, He hath made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God's judgment of our sins fell on him, and he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. He bore our judgment that God might extend to us his mercy and forgiveness and still satisfy the requirements of divine and eternal justice. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but by him all that believe are justified from all things. What an offer! What an opportunity! What infinite divine love. Won't you respond to what Christ did for you on the cross by opening your heart and life to him today? Now is God's appointed time. Tomorrow may be forever too late. As our invitation hymn is sung, bow your head and in simple faith, ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior from this hour on. May God help. I'm sure the message you just heard was a great blessing to you, and I trust that it will help you live a life surrendered to Christ throughout this next week. Here at Canada's National Bible Hour, we're always concerned about the spiritual health of those who listen. We're thankful for those who are believers in Christ who can use the Bible messages to grow in their faith. But we're also concerned about those who maybe have never had a personal relationship with the God of the universe. The Bible is very clear that all sin and come short of the glory of God. You can't get to God without some savior, some means of having your sins forgiven. And of course, the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin or the payment for our sin is death. That's spiritual death. That's hell. But the verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do that by exercising faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the scripture tells us. This month we are offering a booklet called The Saga of a Wise Fool by Dr. Fred Hartman. In this booklet, you will meet an intriguing character known for wisdom and foolishness. The contradiction between his reputation as the wisest man who ever lived and his choices that were very unwise can be understood by examining different aspects of his life. Dr. Fred Hartman does this in a very powerful way. To order your copy, please write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario L2R7A7, or in the U.S., Box 2010, Buffalo, New York 14231.